You are listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. This talk was given at 2007 Frankfurt Avenue. For more information, check out circleofhope.net or join us in person on Sunday evenings at 5 and 7 p.m. We have an interesting AMA, so it's kind of like talk back the whole time, and the topic is whatever you want to ask Joshua. And Joshua has been a parent for... Um, 17 years. He's been a pastor for a little over 15 years. So that means he's like been a church planter in different eras, kind of. So that, that's something. Um, I'm just giving you a little background if you're, to prime the pump if you're um, curious and not sure what to ask. Um, he's been a baseball player for 10 years plus. He's been a good friend to some of the people in this room for 20 years plus. Um, so there's, for such a young man, there's a lot of like long-term things that have been happening. He's been a husband for going on. <laughs> Over 16. 16, my wife, 16. 16 years. Um, <laughs> he's been a neighbor for 12. Alley. Anyway, um, so yeah, bring your curiosity and let's, uh, I actually have never done it, I've read it online, AMA, whatever that is, but we, I bet a bunch of you have done, listened or watched it, <laughs> and we're doing it in real life, so let's be um, good listeners and let's ask good questions. Thank you, Martha, so, so nice and friendly. This is basically how it starts. Gina. I have a two-part question. Uh, first part is, what are your motivations behind doing your job? And the second part is, how have they changed what they have when you started until now? So it was about motivations. And the what's motivating me to my job is in, like, pastor. That's the one. Good question. And what, now have they changed over time? Now I would describe something like the way that I see Jesus, the way I see the Holy Spirit making communities come alive again, waking up people's hearts to live into a, uh, a story that isn't the dominant story, but it's an imaginative, cooperative, collaborative, beautiful reharmonization of everything. And I see it happening, and, and when it works, I just see those poss- uh, the fruit of it, and when it's not working, I look for the possibilities of it. I think early on, you know, being a little bit younger, it was about um, feeling some degree of responsibility for what God's given us. I wanted to do something about that, especially when a lot of us were in our early 20s, trying to live as radically as we can, trying to have as healthy of relationships as we could, trying to build something that's going to outlive us. So I think that while that's still there, I think in some ways I feel like the older I get, the less specific. I think I know what that looks like for everybody and for every community and approach that with a lot more humility, a lot more of, uh, a lot more curiosity and listening. (laughs) Maybe build off of that. I know that you know uh, a lot of elders and and, uh, people who believe 
so even talking about early 20s and like 20 years later, that looks like uh, I'm reminded of like, bear with me, right? But like summer 69, uh, lots of like excitement, movement, counterculture stuff. Fast forward 20 years to like summer 89, like post Bush or post Reagan, like America's very different position. Counterculture is like dead. Um, moving into maybe some of the excitement of like uh, West Coast LA uh, and other underground hip hop that started to pop in the early 90s. But like this longevity thing just seems like it's so hard. Like deadhead sticker on a Cadillac, like selling out to the values of the early 20s into the like, 40s and then beyond. Um, motivation, but then. What do you see as your longevity, and what, what can you part on us as a congregation here in Frankfurt have for our longevity as the neighborhood's changing? And looking more like summer baby maybe. Maybe that's a weird analogy, but it's kind of like that. Yeah, like it's like so, like, Kensington's not weird, like Christian's not weird, but like it's kind of like, like it's very homogenous. It's always been homogenous anyway. Anyway. <laughs> so how do we do longevity, especially in Kensington, in the Philadelphia, in the region? How do you stay in the United States for a long time when you have the mo I mean, mobility, right, is going to be a, a question. Not everybody has the privilege of mobility by their choice. And a lot of people are even forced into mobility. So anytime there's questions about, for me, for sticking power, it begins even with a sense of, I have to acknowledge that I can stay here and I can go somewhere else. Our house is worth more than it was 12 years ago when we bought it. And the, the opportunities, the older that Martha and I get, there are more opportunities through it, throughout. Having relationships with so many of you over time you know, it may feel like you go through seasons of feeling really close to certain people or having habits and rhythms that are real similar to some. If you're part of the same cell for a while, you know, you really like lock in with some people that cell multiplies and maybe another one multiplies and you remember, remember when we were in a cell together back then? And it's, and it's a little bit like, yes, we still have that connection, but it's not as face-to-face -face every week. So to keep going for a long time with people, for me, it's always been less about affiliation. It's been less cognitive. It's been like what really holds relationships together for me is love more than it is some sort of um, common adherence to a value system or uh, a belief system or some kind of propositional truth or something. But um, finding ways to rhythms to regularly rock out together. The number one thing for me is the Sunday meeting and worshiping together. That's what I do every week. I try to do it twice. It's the best. And whatever happens there to me, um, in a lot of ways, I'm, I'm looking for it. I hope it's gonna be cool and everything, and I hope it's gonna, like, someone's gonna like, experience God, but even just for myself, I'm tuning my heart to say, we're coming, I'm coming back face to face, and I'm kind of coming with this sense of urgency and this sense of hope. And then trying to be flexible, adapt, 
realize that peop- as we grow, we change. We can shape each other to some degree. Don't be so disappointed if other people don't adhere to their same radical promises when they were 19 or 25 or 35. It's really not about maintaining the sameness as much as I think it's about adapting, listening to the Holy Spirit together. Dr. K. (laughs) In that same vein, you've had a lot of relationships that over the years, I'm assuming, that have been like embedded in the church and then somebody left the church. Um, and I, I know I've seen <laughs> like waves of people go on to do other things and separate from the circle, um, even long-time stakeholders. So one, how do you protect your heart in that way, those waves that have happened over the years that you've been doing this? Um, and I guess like not personalize it, but also take whatever responsibility or growth or whatever learning is in that relationship, those waves. Like how do you hold those two things? Mm-hmm. Um, and then the second part of that is how do you manage all the projection stuff that like pastors get so much stuff projected onto them. And I'm sure that's interrelated with those relationships. That's good. So it's about how Navigating relationships when people are sort of in and out of the church or maybe in a cycle, maybe in long term. And then how do I process projection, people projecting things onto the church or onto me? I mean, that brings up for me that before we planted this congregation back in 03, we had just bought this building for $50,000. We were renovating it together with about an average about of 150 volunteers a week coming through, uh, pulling nails out of two by fours because we wanted to be able to reuse every little stick that we could. Um, A level of intensity on a building project that I've yet to experience again. It was a marvel. Um, When we're going through that process, I sat down with the bishop who asked me, what do you think is going to be the hardest thing about planting a church? And I said, well, the, the... the hardest thing is going to be when my friends don't want to go along anymore because I'm such a symbiotic person. I'm such a, a connector. And then um, when, when you voice something like that, I don't know if it's the universe or if it's just the way I experience it or if it's God or Satan or what, but when I voice things like that, it happens. You know, say, what's your greatest fear? Okay, here it is, two weeks later. You know, we meet one time, one of my closest friends who was one of our worship leaders, um, I said something at that meeting that uh, really bothered her, and that was it for her. And we were like, you know, a long on-ramp to get this going. So that was just kind of like right away, first week, I had to be like, wow, okay, how to deal with that. And for some people, like I have friends who are part of Circle of Hope, and then they moved to New Zealand. Or, right? or they, they move to South America, you know, they move to, to wherever. We get to stay in touch, and it's cool. We collaborate on other stuff. And it's like that here, too. And some people emotionally move to the other side of the earth, and they live a, f- a block from me. You know, sometimes I feel like working out a covenant relationship with Martha is like that. Sometimes it just, there's some emotional distance. Well, I just mean, like, that's how relationships are, you know? And I think the, 
more important to me than whether we're maintaining the same, the covenant life, which I really, has been so formative for me. I think that's really healthy for people to figure out how to live in covenant community with a place and with one another. Uh, it's very difficult. So I think depending on the situation, sometimes people, this is start to touch is on your part too. Some people want, it's hard for, for them to be friends with me. Because we're, you know, see me, or are they going to say, hey, how's the church? And, my, you know, they, I know that they don't really care. Or they, they don't want to hear about it. And probably I want to talk about it. Because it's so great. And I talk about it every day. There's other people who, you know, you, you have uh, situ situations where it's, it's better to, to not be part of the same body because of either unresolved conflict or some kind of um, lack of health that, that makes distance, even for a period of time, healthy. And I like to keep an open, open heart towards what God could do. The, 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 I don't know, is that kind of getting around it? I don't, so that's the, yeah, the projection part, I don't, I don't understand the, how to describe it really clearly as a psychologist, but it just as a pastor, I think I've seen you have a sense of a, either authority figure or someone that you respect, that you, when it's growing up, it's a parent, it's a caregiver, it's a coach, it's something like that. And then you kind of have this, this thing of like an ex level of expectation. So then the church kind of gets your, the church is supposed to be this way. And when it's not, it, it injures us. When, when uh, and people can do that to pastors pretty frequently. And then some of that, right, is unhealthy dynamics of hierarchy and patriarchy, yada, yada, yada. So you have like this person. And for some people, it's really good in their life to have somebody who's like, they see as like they're a rock or something like that. I think that's really unhealthy for uh, pastors that I've known who try to like be that kind of person and, and their own narcissism. Um, but, uh, but for me, I, I generally try to give people a little bit of slack. They may not know that they're doing it. And at some level, you got to work out that original family stuff. You got to work out that, that respect stuff so at least can, they can work it out in a loving relationship. If they're like my close friend or something and they're doing it, maybe it'd be like, we can talk about it. If they're able to identify it, it's easier to talk about. But I generally don't just tell people, you know, you're projecting on me. You're, you think that you're mad at me. You're not. You know, or so, you know I, I don't know. I try not to go there and just sort of yeah, relate through it. And it kind of goes with the territory with any leadership, I think. It's really good and friendly and nice and curious, Jeremy. Do you believe there is uh, life beyond the planet that God had a hand in? That God what? That God had a hand in. Oh. I mean, the simple answer would be how audacious would it be that I told you when you look up at night on a new moon and see a hundred billion points of light that you're not even looking at stars, you're looking at galaxies. You're looking at vast, um, the closest you can possibly get to looking at infinity. And then to say, well, from my experience, there's only water and life here. The rest of those, forget it. Like to me, that's just incredibly audacious. 
So, I mean, have I, my, have my extraterrestrial encounters been verifiable? <laughs> Only personal experience at a great distance for the most part. I've had some curious moments that are, uh, there's, there's different theories on like, if, uh, why, why haven't we been contacted if we haven't been contacted? And um, I think that stuff's kind of interesting. I think wondering like, is God's story, is it really that big to even have a, an expanding universe and so much possibility? Um, how do we fit in that story? And how does the work of Jesus on earth, how does that affect? Is that like ripples throughout of the whole universe? Because when we talk about the Christian story in the context of European, the rise of the European epoch in the 1500s and on, they want to say this is the universal story. This is what happened for everything for all time. And I think that can get a little bit, little bit audacious too, but I think God's working it out in a cool way. But yeah, I, I think there's... All sorts of, and I'm not sure when you're looking up if you're not looking at like what is living and what is not living, even with like dark matter and wormholes and some other cool stuff that it's like something's going on here and it's working together. It kind of seems like living to me, whether or not they have, I don't know the scientific definition, Charles can help me about what is like, what is a living thing, but I feel pretty good about life outside of this little, this little bump. Can I ask you kind of involved? <laughs> it's, um, it's almost aliens. Even yet, I cannot figure out habitability on this planet. Is that, how much does that matter in a larger scheme of life in the universe? We need only experiment to think about this. To me, the, there is an expiration date on human life on Earth. The simplest one is in a billion years. The Milky Way galaxy and the Andromeda galaxy are going to do a dance. And when those two galaxies dance and form a, a bigger galaxy, there's not going to be any human life here anymore. So that's like, just like, keep that in mind, less than a billion. Now before then, um, you know, Elon Musk and some other folks are really excited about Proxima B which is something like, I think, is it 2.8 light years away? It's like really not that far, and it's possibly in the Goldilocks zone. So what's probably going to happen with the sense of progress is the wealthy people are going to figure out how to, how to extract as much resources here as possible. And then once we can get there in less than 40 years, start sending, once you can figure out how to make that journey, you know, colonize another planet for extraction. Because humans right now aren't living in balance with, what, with creation. We're out of balance with what God's provide, provided. There's every bit enough food for a stable population and even to grow. And so I'm hoping that we get back into balance or that at least we're balanced out by some kind of event that brings us back. That's renewal. That's my hope. I think the earth can be reborn again. It's been reborn before, but with humans would be cool. I, th I think humanity is awesome. You have a beautiful family of million friends. You're very involved in the news. You are really involved in your community. You have great ideas. You just have so many roots.
God allow you to be so lovely and worshipful? How do you always channel all the messed up things that are going on around the neighborhood, in the world, to fulfill a great message that's really helpful to everyone? How, like, how do you not let the crises determine how you're feeling? Just even maybe some small steps for people who are not even in your position, but Things get them down. Like how, what, how do you tolerate things? Mm. Well, I'm, I'm more depressive in terms of my, my drift. And one of the things that uh, a friend of mine told me one time was that he wanted his mother to hold his head high. And, the way, and, and that resonated with me. So the way that I try to live reflects on my mom and her, her ability to, to feel a sense of like uh, health, not pride in the unhealthy sense, but like, like she can really see that what, what God gave her, she passed on and she has that kind of safety. And, and that helps me inform my God image too. And when I think about my mother holding her head high, it's not about, um, me doing the right thing all the time or being in a good headspace because that's just not my reality. And as far as being a good friend, I mean, you can ask people that aren't my friend anymore how, how, how good of a friend I was. <laughs> and they'll, you know, they'll have you, they, I got, there's, you know, there's stories on me. There's, there's uh, mistakes. There's um, things that I, you know, haven't handled well. There's things right now I don't know if I'm handling very well. Conflicts. Sustained conflict, indirect criticism. There's things that make it really difficult for me to thrive. But generally speaking, I'm, I'm trying to... Uh, one practice that I do every day is I have to, to align my heart with gratitude. Um, I'm in, if you're familiar with the Enneagram, which has been a useful tool for me over the years, I'm in the category of what they call a six. So issues of security are critical, and issues of fear are kind of my main, like problem and what unlocks my ability to thrive and grow the number one thing is gratitude and it's like a couple years ago I didn't drink water all the time and once I started the habit of drinking water all the time I realized like I don't like water like every time I drink it I'm like damn like what is this stuff you know this is the best but um I know I need it, and my body responds to it, and now I'm like that with gratitude, too. It doesn't feel good. Writing in a notebook the things I'm grateful for when I'm jammed up, when I wake up stressed out. Sometimes I wake up with the most stressful thing in my life on my mind. It never left me. I fell asleep with it, and I wake up with it. It's, it's terrible. And I just go to the gratitude stuff, and I begin there on purpose to say, okay, God, what are we, what are we working with? Just to... Before we go, Eric, I just wanted to take a breath real quick, a quick vibe check. It's like we're over 15 minutes. Seems like you're, most of you are doing okay. Just want to acknowledge again that for some people, this kind of unstructured thing is really difficult. It's difficult to not be able to hear stuff clearly. Um, the, the buckshot of it is stressful. So if that's you, I love you. Hang, hang in there a couple more minutes if you can. Thank you.
Shout, Sam and Cry. It's a collection of essays and poetry. Steve Heinrichs, sweet Canadian Mennonite friend of mine, was the editor. And this settler indigenous dialogue, mostly folks are from the US and Canada. It's incredible. And if I, it, it helped clarify some concepts that 10 years ago I think I was reaching at to think about how do you be a faithful follower of Jesus on stolen land? And, and can you? How can you be a follower of Jesus when you're so shaped by white supremacy? So those kinds of questions got some really good stuff in Buffalo Shout Salmon Cry. And the, I mean, I read stuff that's counter to my, my, my new, my new self in Jesus, I mean, counter to it every day. I'm constantly confronted with the dominant narrative. Dominant narrative tells us when it's time to get up in the morning and how, we're, how much we're supposed to pay for a cup of coffee. And it tells us, you know, what, what we're supposed to talk about. And it tells us what's the most interesting thing. Um, most of the time, either anything that our current president says or anything that anybody says about the current president basically puts me into that conversation of this competitive, the, we're going we're gonna to just fight it out. And whoever's the best fighter, the strongest, the one who can control the narrative, that's the reality for everyone. And Buffalo Shouts Hammond Cry is a story about cooperation. And yeah, that's dominant narrative is coming on and we're dealing with it. And we're adapting to like, whoa. That was a weird couple hundred years, wasn't it? Let's, let's get these stories, of com uh, the small stories of mutual aid, the small stories of dignity and respect, the small stories that shape our actual existence, that shape our realities. So much of it to me is just what stories are we living into? And is it the dominant narrative or anti-dominant narrative? We all got to work with that at some degree. We got to do something you know, about, there's 20 issues, we could just popcorn right now of like things, yeah, 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 we gotta deal with this. But at the same time, our hearts, I think, get, we can get shaped so in a good way by the, those other stories, the ones of cooperation, the ones of harmony, that we all experience all the time. Buffalo shout salmon cry. Y'all get that, or pop it into your Amazon or whatever you do. It's a book that I would suggest everybody reads. I've, I've probably passed around 20 copies so far. So if you have one of my copies that you haven't read, read it and then pass it on, please. I don't want it back. Just read it. Jenny, is that you? Yeah. Yay. Yeah, so the, God has been feminine forever, right? In the, in the way that we understand femininity. It's never like it didn't, it wasn't there. 
got some wackiness going on. You know, the easiest wackiness is like the fourth century Christians. They kind of really got some consolidation times that made it real rigid. And then the enlightenment especially, I think, made it rigid of this, like, this is what's acceptable and this is what's not acceptable. And this is like, you take these, you know, 28 obvious references to God as, you know, the divine feminine in the scripture. And those are just the ones that are like right in the face. And you have to kind of just say like, no, that's just like something else. I think it's really hard to not embrace it. And I think a lot of the, the dominant church has been trying hard to keep it at bay. The beginning, I think, is uh, paying attention to what you hear and what you say. I mean, how many references for God were gendered during worship? There was like a dozen. Did you, were you catching them? Does it... Do, do you notice when it's not, when they take a, a hymn, a timeless classic, like Be Still My Soul, and say, well, this he is about Jesus. Walk dwelling on the earth. Let's chill. Keep it a he. I don't even know. Do we have this thing on the slide that says, this one's Jesus. How about that? Real informative, too, huh? So good. And then uh, other times, be like, no, oh, we're talking about the, the, um, the, the feminine, the female, and the, the femme of center, however you want to say it. And I, and I think the, you know, we have to do so much, so much work of, you know, in order to, how do you chill out white, hetero, male patriarchy, or how, you know, however you want to say it, how do we chill that out when it's been so loud? How do you move the center of a conversation about God where the, the like, West, my friend Ernest said recently that uh, Western Christianity could be better described as white hetero male liberation theology. <laughs> and I was like, yeah. So letting that center, you know, get, get re-centered is, is really good. And I've been conversating, you know, relating. And the more experience that you have relating, the more experience you have working that out, the easier it is to help other people do it. Sometimes I think we got to be combative and have like a, you know, work it, work it out, have the big thing. Most of the time for me it's been uh, being embraced and feminine images of God are not just about nursing, although nursing and nurturing this beautiful stuff. It's not just about Jesus wanting to be the, you know, the, the, the mother chicken or, you know, whatever, being like, come on little hens. That's there too. But you can get into some gnarly Hosea mother bear gonna tear up stuff. So it's a, you know, and it's not just like a crank, this cranky bear, you know, but it's like the, the, the cubs are threatened and this, this is what really motivates God to action in a motherly way that's powerful. I think for me too, I've had healthy women leaders in my life since I was a kid. So the more our, our next generations to experience leadership by, especially other than just white men or you know, read stuff other than white men, that's good for them. And, and that's happening for sure. Drink. Um, so we have a at least as long as I've been here, somewhere around 
close to a decade now. I've been having conversations about um, how do we as the church work out like a long and like bizarre history with like what we would now call like the LGBTQIA plus community or whatever. Um, to the point where like now, like I think over the past week, we put up a pride flag in the window, which is amazing. Um, but I'm, I'm curious like what has, um, what has your personal journey like, we, we have this whole narrative as a church of, like, how things have changed um, as, like, a body. We each have, like, our own personal kind of uh, stories of, like, growth and changing opinions. And, like, personally, I grew up in an evangelical church that was not friendly to um, anything other than heteronormativity. Um, so what was, that, what was that story like for you, that story of change Like most ways I learn things, it's generally, it's mostly relatedness. It's connections with people, it's experiences, it's, um, it's, it's tasting healthy fruit of, of God's movement in people. It's a, so I think where, a, where I also sort of came from was like a, you know, pretty homophobic dad who came out a couple of years after that. And a lot of difficulty relating with um, that original f family through, through a lot of mental health issues and, and various levels of um, conflict and drama and all that stuff that's kind of ongoing. In the church, I think one, one thing that, that has been really healthy for us is to not think about, especially say queer folks, as somebody who's not part of our church. There's, all, there's been queer folks in our church the entire time since the first cell had queer people in it. And leaders have, you know, various levels, the, you know, the entire time. I think for me, especially, you know, six, probably six years ago, I had had a lot of really interesting encounters with, with folks who were in contexts where conversations about, you can, if you want to call it marriage equality or redefinition of marriage or however you want to kind of describe this movement that was about to happen across, you know, before Obama got on the talk show and said that his views of marriages have, have evolved, which is, I think, um, a watershed moment in U.S. history, and, and, and the result of that was one of the, the greatest mind changes in a two-year period that I've, I don't know, I'm not the most, the best uh, history student ever, but like, how do you measure how many people change their mind besides these polls or whatever, but like, it's an incredible swing during that time. And for me, it was, it was relatedness and seeing like how marriages work outside of what I experienced them before. Um, how marriages work that are, you know, how new families are formed and um, how, how folks, especially on the discipleship journey, right? Because that's, I think, a lot of us are really, in, church people are generally concerned, right, about how are we working out health with the church as more than we're worried about, like, how do we just make moral presumptions on people that are out there or something. 
but um, helping, being part of journeys, being part of stories with people, has to me has, has really been um, the most significant thing. Seeing God move in people, seeing God move through them, see, being led, led by, being uh, in relationships where somebody could say "ouch" and still engage. Being in relationships where I could say "oops" and we still engage. So I think the figuring out that as a as a church body, or you know. I've, I have, you know, a couple dozen friends who are church leaders and denominations, and most of them, uh, if they got to somewhere, they split. I'm so happy that we didn't. I mean, you could say that some people split. Some people did. And some people didn't, you know, it was too slow of a timeline for them. And that's, uh, some people got hurt by... Um, a sense of ambivalence or a sense of, you know, like there's a, some people think this, some people think that, you know, it's the same way about like, we have people, I know this is gonna shock you, cover, cover your ears, some of you, but there's people in our church who voted for Trump. And for some folks that is just like, that defies their, their defies their like reality. It's like, how could anyone in circle of hope vote? And it's like, for human beings. And I would dare prescribe to you who you should all vote for or not. Like that's again, that's really audacious. So I think the, um, yeah, so just working it out in, in the, the ways people do that in love and relatedness, where wears down resistance. It wears down people's skepticism when they are in a loving relationship, when they're, when they're seeing good fruit of God, when they're seeing the health, when they're experiencing health, when they're experiencing vitality. It's, it's very compelling. Yes, ma'am. Uh, if you imagine our community uh, in like, and yourself in like 15 or 20 years more, since we've had about that much, what is it like? What is it like? Uh, sort of hope in 15, 20 years. this sense that it's going to be people who are feeling called to those, those stories that aren't the dominant stories. People who are um, thinking about, they're taking money real serious. Like, I think one of the, the coolest things about Circle of Hope, especially the formational first decade or two, was like wealth redistribution is one of the cleanest, clearest ways that people experience the, the kingdom, the, the, the community of creation. And I think some of the money stuff that we're doing now is going to bear such fruit that um, it builds a baseline for not just people to be radical expressions of, like, we're actually, you no, know, this is like the Jesus thing is our thing, but um, the amount of resources that we provide to our communities that we're part of the, the amount of jobs that we create and the ethics behind them that we develop, the way that we help people get out of debt, the way that we, that we create spaces for people to get educated without going into ludicrous amounts of debt. I think that's gonna be a big, a big thing. But I have a feeling that we're gonna um, have to multiply our sense of network. And there's, there's, there's a certain amount of 
when we're rolling together and we're five to 700 people, that starts to expand regionally. And I think it, those like, those little pockets become like a little bit bigger so that, so that there's connectedness that is a little bit different. So I'm, I'm hoping that the leadership multiplication that people are still feeling called to start new things. I think the cell church, the shalom justice oriented congregations, the, the, it's, and I think we're trying to even be inspired by God, but also what the world needs. I think we have more congregations. My estimate would be like in 20 years, probably another at least five, maybe more, and probably another several that are connected relationally, but there's geogra geographical distances, or there's, right now we have that too, shared ethos or same, using the same stuff, but it just looks a little bit different. And I think the way that we, the, the, the next, the, I mean, Gen Z is gonna be pretty active in that. The kids that are like 21 and under right now, when those kids are leading the, the whole thing, I think that's gonna be good. And I'm, I'm really hoping that our generation, the sort of folks who are going to be 40, 50, 60, that we learn really well how to transition, how to lift up, how to raise up, how to accompany, how to, have men how to be mentors, how to be mentored, and how to um, not get in the way of empowering and equipping and sending. I think that's our, our, our biggest gift that we have, empowering, equipping, and sending. Yes, Jerry. Um, I think I would have to know more about the, the situation, but you're talking about like the, the, she dusted the 10 time incumbent, right? Running on a radical platform to say that we have to like, um, I mean, it's, what is it? What's the name of the socialist party that, that she's part of? The Democratic Socialist Party? I mean, I wish we, I mean, I wish that there was like, I don't know, what, 250 more of her in Congress? That would be a good start, I mean, personally. I'm not a socialist, but I think the socialists would do well to, to, to be in charge of a lot of the government, uh, especially the budgeting. I think socialists really get the financial um, analysis really well. So yeah, so I, I would love that. Yeah, but, but, but here's, the, here's the problem, right? Is, is once, once a revolution has power, you know, then, then you're on the way to becoming a despot, right? And, and, and even it's, if it's an oppressed group or if it's this like, you know, if you, have a, if you think that you have a utopian dream that's big enough for 350 million people and you can get people on board to do it, you're eventually like just setting yourself up to be that dominant narrative of even dominant narrative of, of salvation politically or something where, yeah. So I hope more, I hope more, more organizing like that happens. I hope more radical candidates run. I don't think that the United States um, is gonna be fixed by politicians. It never has been. I think they're an impediment to, to health and the, yeah, that's the history. 
It's kind of getting, going to get late. I'm having a good time, just so you know. I appreciate how well, politely you've listened, warm questions. I feel the very affection, you know, I feel the love. It's flowing through this room. It's really good. Um, but we do need to move it to a, a close. But Charles, what, you're, uh, you have a question, and I want to let you have the last one. Uh, two quick questions. One, um, I know you're very busy. Um, what do you suggest that you have any tips for budgeting time or prioritizing? And two, would you rather fight a horse sized dog? <laughs> So yeah, time management, and then would I rather fight a horse-sized duck or a hundred duck-sized horses? That one I'll have to ponder. The time management, I think, is similar to me for uh, as managing other resources that you're sort of like the steward of, so money or whatever. And the, the, the paradigm that we're given, that we generally start with, is... This is more of a financial paradigm, but it works with time for me also, is spend, save, share. So you focus on like the things that bring you most pleasure or the things that bring you the most money or whatever you're doing, and that's kind of like that spending maybe. And then you're, you're saving some energy for like what you want to do that you don't, can't get paid to do, like chill acts or whatever like your sort of thing is. And then eventually we get to the point of like, yeah, and then I, can, I think I can share some of this stuff with other people. I think that Jesus flips that. It's easy, like, I don't know, I know sometimes it's like binaries and all that stuff. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. But essentially, the share out of your heart, the abundance of what God's doing in you with your time, give it up for others. Now you gotta, you gotta know your personality, you gotta know your limits, and, you gotta, and that's a journey. So we're always talking about that right around here. We're always talking about like learning boundaries in a new way, learning how to say no, this is all really good. You should learn how to like where, where that sort of edge is for you at that moment in that season and let it be sort of fluid leader, leadership and all that stuff. But when we're, when we're share and then we're save, thinking about the long term and then we're spending, I think even our time and what we do with it, we, we end up making time for those important and unurgent things that are so soul restoring. And you gotta, you gotta do something that restores your soul every day and once a week. I mean, Sabbath is what the Hebrew Bible described that sort of phenomenon as. And it's a limit to the demands. It's a limit to oppression. It's a limit to that because you're saying, no, this is, this is fallow space for God to Restore me, fallow space for your body to be restored. So I, so I do things, you know, according to a flow. I have certain things that are rhythms every week. I have things that are rhythm once a month, once a quarter, once a year. And uh, using, uh, I use Google Calendar, and so does my family. So we all have access to each other's calendars. There's various other tools that help talking to other people about it and minding the, the times that, like, what habits do I have that just sort of, like, I'll just do for six hours or something. Like I play video games. And I, if I just let myself have unfettered time in video games, I mean, I could live in those worlds. It's so sweet. <laughs> and, you know, or, or things that are like, you know, that's, but that's not with, with the, according to my deepest held convictions, values, calling, you know. 
a little dabble of it sometimes and have some fun is good, but um, time management and taking it seriously. I had to take it seriously when I was like 20. My mentor made me use a day planner and it was so hard for me because I used to keep my schedule stuff in my head. And then that was a big shift too, is I don't keep any, like sometimes people see me and they're like, hey, see you Tuesday. And I honestly, sometimes I'm just kind of like, I hope you're right. <laughs> because I just don't know. I, I look at, I use technology for that. I'm a technologically adapted person in that sense. This is, this is really cool. Mike, you want to slide one in there? All right, sli slide one more and then we'll, then Jenna's going to. What is your greatest fear for this congregation? The greatest fear for the congregation? I think it would be that folks would get so concerned with, uh, again, it's just like, so my boy Benjamin, who dipped out in the middle here, he's a really brilliant German seminary student in Indiana and just read this, this gnarly book and was just like, we were flowing for like three days about this idea of like, essentially these two villages, you know? The village of the dominant narrative, or you can call it neoliberalism, if you're talking about global political economic realities, but like that our group, if we were just concerned with that dominant story and it's, and it's based in competition, it's based on whether or not I'm getting enough, it's based on whether or not something is good enough, based on other people's performance, based on you know, this thing, we have to like hack, hack things out. That to me, that toxicity of that, it would be so acquiesced to dominant narrative, dominant culture, I think that that would just be just slowly strangling the soul, quenching the spirit, that kind of stuff. And, and um, you know, because you know, people turn on each other, people lose heart, people lose their sense of, you know, when we talk about burnout, as a phenomenon that's happened, a lot of people describe their lives as feeling a sense of burnout over the last couple of years. So much of that has to do with losing touch with the, the, the answer to the question, why? And if you're in touch with why, you can go. And you, you, know, you can see people around the world, you can people in different kind of less privileged communities have a very strong sense of why, and they're, they're able to, to do things that, are, that defy my sense of boundaries and healthy rhythms of all that stuff. So I think for us, I wanna not just say the fear, but also I think what I think is the antidote to that fear or, the, or how do we get into there is even just reforging our spirits to exist where the story of your cell paying somebody's rent that is an experience that you can be part of that actually shapes your life for a little bit longer than five minutes. Maybe it's even a week where you just feel that you're part of that. You're part of mutual aid. You know, when somebody does work on their, somebody else's house for free, a lot of people do that for a living, do high-skilled stuff, and people in Circle of Hope just give that away all the time. Like, oh, you need like 40 hours in your house? I'll just take a couple days off, you know? And the people do it for each other. It's incredible love. And like letting those experiences uh, really shape reality. And when those, those things, that's a groundswell. And that creates, you know, even a, a change. This is where it gets a little bit too, too vague, I guess, for some people. But the way that change happens is that you can describe it in a wave, right? Seasons of change. 
when you have that groundswell of people experiencing transformation, experiencing redemption, experiencing harmony, you build a wave that builds up, has a nice break, and goes, we call that peeling in the surfing world. And when they're peeling like that, you ride on the face and, you, and beautiful things happen. Dolphins play in such waves. <laughs> Not just human beings. That's how change can work. Or if you don't have it, or if you just have the swell and you're not going and the change is kind of like, ah, the wave broke. You can't ride, it can't, you know, no dolphins like it. And I think, so, so uh, my fear would be that we would just um, be absorbed into that dominant narrative about competition, about things being good enough or not, or about us getting what we needed or not, or did other people do the right thing or not, or did we, I don't know. Those kinds of questions, I think, can just consume and bring you out of that reality of like, wow, this is like, we just sang together and it was beautiful. Like that's the, that's just, we're not elongate that. Where it's like, yeah, that, that is our way of being, is the Holy Spirit does beautiful things through us, even though we're, we have a lot to work out. We have a lot that we're not done, done with. I just want to say I appreciate your, your love and your, your goodness as people who are trying to work this out together. You, you do experiments like this all the time. We just did a discernment process when it was just demonstrating like how much listening is important to us. To even do something like this, the people who are asking questions, um, you showed what is on the heart, I think, of a lot of us and a lot of people maybe who aren't even in here. And it was really good. You brought up good things. And I'm grateful for that. Thanks for listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. If you want to talk about it or get connected to a cell, you can find one under our Connect drop-down at circleofhope.net.